Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their rights to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify, and you can help support the podcast through Patreon. This episode's topic, The Ever-Closing Frontier. The Gilded Age was the story of rapid, even astonishing expansion of population growth, of cities, of money, literacy, culture, and many other facets of modernizing life. Nowhere else was this energy felt more powerfully than the massive expansion into the remaining territories of the American West, the Great Frontier. But by the 1890s, the sense had set in that the expansion was so successful that the frontier itself was closed, the West was won, and the American nation was now seemingly bereft of purpose and mission. Why did they feel this way? What answers did they give to the challenge of this closing frontier for the country at large? And just how accurate was this sense that the purpose uh, of the purpose and nature of this frontier that they so cherished? With me today to discuss this and other great questions is Professor David Robel, professor of Western American history at the University of Oklahoma and author of many important books on the American West in this period, including The End of American Exceptionalism, Frontier Anxiety, from, from the Old West to the New Deal. David, welcome. Well, thanks, Avi. Welcome uh, to you. I'm very, very pleased to be here. So I guess let's start with the absolute basics, uh, set the stage for our listeners. What exactly was the frontier in both reality and the imagination of both the average American and political elites after the Civil War? Okay, that's a lot to uh, unpack. I mean, there were there was a sense, I think, a vague sense of what the frontier meant, and the term frontier had been in use for a long, long time um, since uh, you know since the the eighteenth uh, century at least. There was a lot of talk about expanding onto the frontier, opportunities on the frontier. You could say that the uh, the war for independence was sparked in part by a sense that uh, a mother country was not allowing for the kind of expansion that colonists should be uh, permitted to engage in. So uh, there, there was a sense of frontier heroes, uh, heroic exploits on the frontier that uh, dates back in American literature to the late 18th and early 19th centuries uh, uh, that figure of Daniel Boone was a part of the American imagination, uh, for, I mean, deeply embedded in American thought by the time of the Civil War. So there was a sense of the frontier as a place of opportunity, uh, a place of danger, uh, a place where uh, white settlers would encounter 
indigenous peoples. Uh, there were all kinds of misconceptions about those uh, indigenous peoples. There were no, uh, there, were, there was no fuzziness about um, the sense of America's, white America's right to conquer these lands. That was just uh, a given. If you think back to Manifest Destiny, articulated in the 1840s, there was a phrase, uh, I think it was ever expanding millions uh, in, um, you know, in that those early articulations by John O'Sullivan about Manifest Destiny, but the sense that the society that was expanding demographically had a set of rights. And we think about Manifest Destiny as being about um, democracy and about uh, divine right, right? It's this mixture of democracy and providence, but it's also a demographic argument that the nation with ever-expanding millions was the nation that deserved to occupy certain spaces. So arguments were made about indigenous peoples being nomadic. Uh, some were, some were not. Uh, the degrees of uh, nomadic activity varied, but a sense that uh, indigenous peoples were nomadic uh, they were uh, less populous, and they didn't uh, they didn't um, steward the land in the same kinds of ways that uh, Euro American uh, settlers did, and therefore they had less intrinsic right to the land. So that was a pretty ingrained notion by this time, and it's important to bear in mind that that is one set of uh, very sort of clear notions that the frontier is a dangerous place that requires uh, a degree of um, grit and determination and heroism to settle. And you need to step back from that and ask yourself, uh, who promotes settlement by suggesting that people go to a place like this? I mean, this is an awful argument. If you're a land promoter, you don't want to say, come out to the frontier, right? You want to say, come out to the post-frontier paradise, the settled, tamed land uh, that is, uh, you know, the place of American opportunity. You don't want to emphasize indigenous rivals to that space. You want to emphasize how these spaces are open for white Euro-American entrepreneurialism in a way that uh, perhaps America's big Eastern and Midwestern cities are not open. You want to uh, maybe contrast the degree to which indigenous populations and in places like California, uh, Hispanic populations are subdued and, and the ways in which immigrant populations on the East Coast and in Midwestern cities are not subdued. So it's it's not a matter of coming to the frontier, it's a matter of coming to post-frontier paradise, it's right, coming to promised lands. That's the key in advertising it. That's the key in promoting settlement. Right. I actually wanted to bring that up because uh, the common image of the frontier is this was the place where uh, well, one of the arguments for it, like you said, to try and encourage people is that this was the quote unquote social safety valve. This was the right, if you right. did if you if you didn't cut it in a city, 
if you didn't cut it in settled areas, this was where you could go to uh, to uh, to to make your way uh, or to live on your own. But the truth is, is that uh, when you know, most of the state, most of that area was made into states, um, the Midwest was still far more populated than sure. this western area. The Northeast was still far more populated than this area. Did people not notice the the disparity between the uh, the image of this place as an area for teeming amounts of people, and the and yet the teeming amounts of people didn't really show up? <laughs> well. I mean, in a sense, the teeming amounts of people were showing up, but they were showing up not quite in the ways that match the mythology, right? You get you get covered wagon, you know, movement of large groups, to be sure. You get movement of individuals. But, you know, once you have railroads in place very early in the Gilded Age and, uh, you know, pretty soon after the Civil War, <laughs> you, you have... You, you you have railroad companies promoting settlement um it, you know in ways that make it a lot easier you know to to travel so you have that going on and uh the the idea of the safety valve which the historian frederick jackson turner had popularized starting in the uh, early 1890s and i think it's a part of American thought. I mean, there's a general sense of this safety valve in the United States before Turner, right? I mean, Turner doesn't just invent an idea. He gives an idea that's got sort of pretty um, wide uh, traction already. He gives it academic legitimacy. It's the idea that, that people in overcrowded eastern cities, industrial workers could move west, and that would re- relieve the tension in those cities, thus uh, mitigating the dangers of industrial rebellion and warfare and class violence. And of course you have all of those things in the industrial Northeast and uh, in Chicago and other Midwestern cities, you have that industrial violence. So on one level you could say that, look, the frontier just wasn't working as a safety valve. People from those uh, more densely populated, industrialized urban centers, the the people who you would sort of need to be leaving for the safety valve to be working are not leaving. They're not leaving in large part because they're not farmers. They don't don't have that kind of uh, uh, experience. Or in some cases, they are people who've left agrarian America to to be part of industrial America, imagining that that there will actually be more economic certainty uh, working in those teeming uh, urban uh, industries than, uh, you know, packing houses and so on, uh, than uh, working uh, on farms. So the safety valve doesn't really work, but it works in another way. I think that's quite important it's harder to measure it's uh it's fuzzier but it's definitely a part of the thinking at the time and that's that you imagine that if there's an option there you could take it if you wanted to take it one one scholar a long long time ago as early as the 1940s talked about the notion of a psychological safety valve that somehow uh it could be a mark of national pride that you you had this option to try something else, even if 
the likelihood of you ever taking it was was low. Most of the settlement into the far west that takes place uh, in the late 19th century is, is not coming in a straight line from the east coast uh, to uh, new western states and territories. It's it's an incremental process of uh, people buying land, settling it in the Midwest, moving a little further uh, into the Midwest, then uh, moving further west. So it's a more sort of uh, incremental process, but it's a process that grows significantly after the end of the Civil War when uh, there's significant government underwriting of the process, right? The homestead. Act and um, you know and uh, the government support for the railroads facilitate this heightened movement into uh, the West by the late 1860s, early 1870s, and we see a massive wave of movement into the region that includes the promotion of these Western opportunities to people across the globe and huge numbers of people from Europe and other places. Uh, end up uh, being tempted to move directly to the west. Most still move uh, to uh, to the east and to midwestern cities, but it's a massive wave of promotion of land opportunities uh, in the far west that takes place from about you know the the late sixties, early seventies up until that economic depression of the eighteen nineties. So once you get to about 1893, there's there's less promotion, there's less movement. And then after the depression of the 1890s, by about 1897, 1898, that movement of people facilitated in part by uh, a massive structures of promotion will take place again. And it will last for another uh, couple of decades. And in fact, in that second wave of sort of settlement of Western lands that's sort of more in alignment with the progressive era, I suppose, and the Gilded Age, depending on when we think one ends and the other begins. But that second wave from the late 1890s uh, up until the, the 19, early 1920s uh, it is, is really very, very significant. Uh, more actual homesteading land is proven up in the first couple of decades of the 20th century than in the last uh, you know, four decades of the 19th century from the inception of the Homestead Act. So you know, it's, it's a long process, I think, that covers the Gilded Age and, uh, and Progressive Era. Uh, so that, that, that's an interesting thing. You, you pointed out, indeed, uh, already in the beginning. So how was it that even though there was yet waves of there was wa there were waves of settlement yet to come, as you know, why is it uh, that a guy like Turner and indeed uh, American elites in general come to the conclusion that it's all over? What what leads them to such a, a decisive you know, that's break? A, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so this sense that what has made America distinctive is passing. It's actually there from a very early moment. Thomas Jefferson had expressed this fear in the late 18th and at the very start of the 19th century. And other people had talked about how these new lands, the lands of the Louisiana Purchase, 
were defining this new nation. And just imagine you're, you're a new nation with land to move into, thinking about that in the context of closed, very hierarchical European societies. I mean, this was astonishing. And there was a sense that, you know, this would be the defining feature of this very new nation. And you get to, I think it, it's as early as the 1870s, you start to read uh, significant concerns being expressed about what will happen when this resource, this frontier runs out. And uh, you get more of it in the 1880s than in the 1870s, much more of it. And uh, it, the, the concerns begin to grow and you get a sort of, uh, you know, I think the start of, um, you know, a, 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 and I mean, in some ways it's an intellectual movement. In some ways it's a, a body of ideas that, like ideas in any period, gain traction through their usefulness. And the sad thing, of course, is that as the demographic face of the nation is changing, as more people who look, look uh, different, more people from Southern and Eastern Europe, for example, are moving into the country, more people from Northern and Western Europe who view themselves as more original, authentic settlers are getting anxious about the changing demographic uh, face of the nation. So that argument about the distinctiveness of the American frontier and its role in turning immigrants into Americans, that, that concern begins to grow that the frontier is losing that ability. So I think it's it's very evident as a fear in American thought by uh, the late 1880s, and of course it's you know it's in this period that anti-Chinese sentiment and anti-immigrant sentiment more broadly is growing in the country. Uh, so you're looking for arguments for why you should keep people out, and one argument that's that starts to get voiced by the 1880s is that we used to be able to turn immigrants into Americans, but now we no longer can because we don't have the the frontier and it's seemingly magical ability to transform people of different nationalities into this new thing, an American. Uh, and, you know, and of course that argument gets um, adopted by people who don't necessarily know very much about the frontier or how many people are living there, but they know a great deal about why they don't like immigrants and what things in America they're concerned about and the, the scale of change. Uh, so the, the argument of a closing frontier starts to get used in the 1880s as an argument against the unrestricted flow of immigration into the country. And, and as you know, uh, remarkably, maybe, maybe predictably, that argument is still alive and well. The argument that we don't have room for people who are different uh, is still very much a part of American thinking. 
by the 1890s, this idea has been articulated in a sort of, and given a degree of academic respectability by Frederick Jackson Turner, but by a whole host of other thinkers, uh, uh, economists, historians, uh, literary figures who start playing out this theme of a closing frontier and how it's going to change things. And what Turner says in that 1893 essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, is basically an, an academic framing of these ideas that had been out there, that the American frontier had made Americans more democratic. Now would they become less democratic uh, once the frontier begins to disappear? The American frontier had uh, given the nation a, a strong sense of itself, uh, a stronger sense of nationalism. Would there be such national unity? I mean, you know, my goodness, the, 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 you know, you have the, the American Civil War in the midst of this and and somehow the frontier is cited uh, uh, in the late 19th century as a, a unifying force. I mean, it's, it's incredulous in, in some ways, but, you know, that's the way mythologies and, and assumptions can, can play out. But it's a, a sort of growing sense that the things that had defined the nation, and there was a sense that it was democracy, it was nationalism, individualism. That's another core feature, right? That Americans are more inherently individualistic, uh, self-sufficient, um, and that the frontier experience seemed to exemplify that need for self-reliance, uh, individual strength, that maybe that will dissipate and will become more like Europeans. And then the other piece, of course, is uh, is manhood. Uh, you know, on the frontier with all its dangers, uh, American manhood is nurtured and reared. And uh, in a post-frontier age, will Americans become soft? And that, of course, gets used in the rhetoric that helps lead the nation into the war against Spain at the end of the century. With people like uh, Theodore Roosevelt, very publicly proclaiming the impending softness of the nation in the wake of the absence of the frontier. So it, th those ideas become embedded in, in, in American thought as you move into a new century. And I think in every era you get concern over the pace of change. I do think in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era that Concern over the pace of change is particularly elevated. I think it is through the 1920s as well. But uh, you've got this sort of perfect mix of a set of fears that come about in part because the demographic demographic nature of the of the nation is changing. There is a, a huge rate of immigration into the country uh, from the 1870s up through the the beginning of World War One. Um, and so, so an argument about the the threat to American democracy becomes an argument that can be used against, uh, um, you know, uh, the unrestricted flow of immigration and so on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it it's a process that's playing out over over decades, but uh, th there's this sense of what's distinctive about the frontier 
and how it has made a nation exceptional. So not surprisingly, you get a sense that once that source, that wellspring of American exceptionalism is running dry, then America runs the risk of becoming like the other nations that it professes so greatly to be different from. Hmm. It's becoming like its forebears, which would be a mark of, of defeat for the national identity, I suppose. So uh, one thing I guess I was thinking, and I guess I was being a bit contrarian as I was uh, reading your uh, very, very uh, great books. Um, in addition to talking about how resources are running out and also how America needs to expand and uh, become more imperialistic uh, and and grab more resources, I was wondering why so instinctively pessimistic about cities, which were the increasing real American frontier to which not just immigrants, but also uh, native-born Americans were moving for opportunity and all sorts of things. Did, was nobody thinking, well, okay, they aren't perfect and they could become Europeanized. Why not think, well, why not make an American form of a city? After all, um, the, the, the Declaration of Independence was signed in a city, not a small town. Uh, New York City was one of the crown jewel of the country. Why, why Why? was it just a given that cities are our doom? <laughs> That's a great and very complicated question because as Western lands are being promoted, Western cities are being promoted as places that are free of a set of problems that are imagined to be endemic to Eastern and Midwestern cities. So, um, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, through um, through Upton Sinclair, right, and uh, the jungle to some degree, but through, you know, many portrayals of the city, uh, through the Great Fire, um, through uh, uh, the, pub the legendary sort of public health complications in the city, um, you know, Chicago becomes a center of that kind of thinking and, um, you know, New York as well. And you get these settlement house movements that are particularly strong in Chicago and New York. But in many, many Eastern and Midwestern uh, cities, you have these settlement house movements that I think further amplify the sense of cities as places that need to be saved, need to be made better. Right. Um, you know, whether it's Jane Adams, uh, you know, on a campaign to ensure the garbage gets removed or whether it's providing, um, you know, a, a chance of social uplift for uh, immigrant communities. There's this sense that people are coming in to save American cities and Western cities are promoting themselves by saying, look, <laughs> You don't need to worry about any of those uh, social issues or even public health issues or um, aesthetic issues because Western cities are more beautiful. They're more open. Uh, they're more democratic, yet the, public, the populations you worry about the most are more controlled. It's a, a strange mix, I mean, of things. It's not just Western lands. It's Western towns and cities that are being presented as these 
promised lands, these wonderlands, but they are to some degree being presented as wonderlands of whiteness. Uh, these are uh, places that are uh, safer because populations of color are more controlled. I mean, that's that's very much a theme in the way um, Western settlement into urban areas as well as rural areas is marketed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But uh, I, I do think that there is um, there's certainly there's a lot of writing at the time about the hopefulness of American cities and about the um, the ingenuity and the technological progress that uh, is making American cities such wonderful places to live. And when you think about how national health was measured, demographic growth was a big part of this, right? The nation was stronger because it had, what was the, the, the phrase was not ever expanding millions uh, in, in um, John L. O'Sullivan's Manifest Destiny. It was uh, yearly multiplying millions. That was the phrase that was used. And, and as you get into the 1870s and 80s and 90s, this idea that the nation has yearly multiplying millions, that, that was a mark of pride as well. But it also turns out that you get plenty of visitors to the United States, many of them from Europe, who uh, focus in their travel writings on uh, the things that they don't like about uh, American cities. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, ironically, it, you know, it's uh, those uh, visitors, many of them from Europe, who uh, are quite critical uh, and who are quite critical in part because of the scale of democracy in those cities. They find them to be less controlled spaces. So I do think there were there were positive voices around. But I think America from, well, I mean, really from the Jeffersonian notion of the yeoman farmer on mm -hmm. had uh, articulated a, a, a an identity that was built on on land ownership and it was built on uh, a sense of space. And there was a sense that if you become too urban, you become like the very urban places that people left to pursue, uh, you know, their their dreams in America. So, given all that, uh, that the, those contrasting feelings, as you note, on the one hand, the Jeffersonian conception of America as a rural nation of yeoman farmers and artisans, and on the other hand, we're very proud of our huge cities, our different cities, our core democratic cities. Um, the 1920s and 1930s, which is after our period, but an epilogue worth examining. Um, I remember uh, reading a book by Abedi Schleiss about uh, the Depression. And one of the things that stood out to me was how much FDR talked about the closing of the frontier oh as, a, as a kind of as a kind of pessimistic coda to what was going on. Um, well, in, in, in that era, when ostensibly they succeeded, right? The, the immigration laws had been passed, so pretty much it was sharply curtailed until uh, the uh, immigration reforms of, of 1965. Uh, did that pessimism still reign, really? Or uh, was it still a mix? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big, big uh, question. I mean, one place to begin would be... Uh... You know, every uh, 
um, State of the Union address. And it's stunning that, uh, you know, president after president gives a nod to the frontier experience and how it shaped America. It's just, it's just a thing. You, you can't seem to escape that in presidential addresses. You know, President Obama talking about uh, the the role of the Western frontier. It just it, um, you know, it just it is what it is. That's an ingrained part of uh, American thinking, and the frontier concept didn't go away with the presumed end of the frontier. I mean, you, you've also got to ask yourself what does it mean that the frontier closed? I mean, it, everybody was talking about it as being closed by the end of the 19th century. Turner had said that it was the 1890 census, which said there's no longer a discernible frontier line of settlement. So you can no longer see an actual line moving westward. So if you can't see a line and it's broken up by isolated bodies of settlement, then we no longer have a frontier. Well, okay, but that's a weirdly sort of uh, vague yet specific notion at the same time that you have to actually have a frontier line to have a frontier. I mean, a line of westward moving population. Turner also talked about a population of two or less per square mile. Well, it turns out there are parts of the West that are more frontier-like based on that demographic description today than they were 125 years ago. There are certainly parts of Western Kansas and uh, Western Nebraska and <laughs> populations actually lower, various other parts across the West too. Uh, so w what does that mean that the frontier is, is closed? Uh, 1890 was a date that was often used and Wounded Knee seemed to mark a symbolic end to Indian wars, but it certainly doesn't mark an end to white settler colonialism and dispossession of native peoples. That's a process that's very much ongoing. Um, the turn of the century seemed like another, you know, surely it's done by now. There's not really an American frontier left by now. But as I said, more people prove up homestead lands in the first two decades of the 20th century, way more than do so in the last four of the 19th century. So uh, if it's about the scale of population, I mean, far more people move into the far west during World War II to pursue jobs in the war industry than, uh, you know, during, uh, you know, these periods of, of expansive, um, you know, uh, and, and famed settlement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the Great Depression years are, are actually years in which there is continued movement into some parts of the west. Of course, the migration from the southern plains into California, but also a migration that's less, you know, readily talked about. Uh, but it's a migration from the northern plains, from uh, Nebraska and the Dakotas into Oregon and Washington that takes place in the 1930s. There are significant demographic movements into the West during the Depression decade uh, as well. And it's during the Depression years, as you say, that the Roosevelt administration utilizes this, uh, utilizes this idea of a closed frontier. I would point out that Herbert Hoover in the 1920s and in the 1930s articulated a very different idea. He said the frontier wasn't closed, 
because as long as there were frontiers of entrepreneurial activity, frontiers of American individualism, then uh, the distinctiveness of America would be maintained. So you've got a Hooverian vision of American individualism being maintained despite the sort of presumed close of a land frontier. But with the, the New Deal administration, you get this articulated pretty early on. It's articulated, I think, very clearly in FDR's San Francisco Commonwealth Club speech during the 1932 campaign, where he says, I'm not going to get the language exactly right, but he says that the uh, frontier of Western lands, that safety valve of Western lands needs to be uh, replaced with a safety net provided by enlightened government. And, you know, of course, there's all kinds of thinking during the progressive era about the role of enlightened government. And if you look at um, what uh, Robert LaFollette does in Wisconsin, if you look at what's happening in California uh, around the same time, first decade uh, of the uh, beginning of the very beginning of the second decade of the 20th century, this massive array of government reforms, state government reforms, uh, um, you know, but then you know reforms at the federal level that show that government can have an enlightened role to play. But it's really with FDR that you have this articulation of a government safety net, a safety net of enlightened government to replace the safety valve of the frontier. And this is a pretty important argument, right? There is a place for government because the opportunity that was the sort of natural inheritance of the country has run out. Now that it's gone, if the government doesn't step in, there'll be no protection from massive economic depression and all the terrible dislocation that it causes. So that was a that was a concept of the the New Deal as the new as a new frontier of government intervention. That was adopted by many New Dealers. And it became a part of the larger rhetoric of the New Deal that the government could do important things to uh maintain the the integrity uh the dignity of people's lives and that's a i think that's a significant shift in american thought it's not that it hadn't been there in embryonic form before it had been there in the progressive era it had been there in the intellectual thought of lester frank ward who said that social darwinism wasn't the way to move forward it was a more reform kind of darwinism where we would, the dynamic power of the human mind would elevate us to the point where we realize that those with the greatest need could be easily supported in a nation as, as economically abundant as the, as the US. So those thoughts were there, but they are articulated in, in a much bigger way uh, during the New Deal. And that sense of a closed frontier it, you know, it's sort of it's it's reborn in the 1930s in American 
uh, political thought, but there's also, uh, you know, an opposition to that. And it's not just Hoover in the early 1920s with a book called American Individualism. It's Hoover in 1937 with a book, uh, I think it's 1937, but a book that comes out in response to FDR's New Deal programs, and it's called The Challenge to Liberty. I think it's a little bit before then. It might be as early as 34 that Hoover's first uh, um, you know, run of this book takes place, and he's providing this counter-narrative to the New Deal that says when government steps in to... Um, you know, replace the opportunity of the frontier, what it's doing is replacing the opportunity that came through American individualism, through the uh, uh, self-reliant traits of, uh, of, of the American nation. And, you know, it's in opposition to that new sort of closed frontier argument of the New Deal that you get this very vehement conservative response. And uh, it's important to bear that in mind. Uh, you know, it's, it's a period when the Democratic Party wins elections. It wins, um, gosh, it, it, it wins in 32, 36, 40, 44, 48. You could say in 52 and 56, the, the person who won uh, could very easily have been a Democratic Party uh, candidate uh, as well and certainly is far too... Eisenhower was far too moderate to, uh, um, you know, pass muster for American conservatives today. Uh, and uh, then Kennedy and uh, Lyndon Johnson. You have Democratic victories from 32 through uh, 64. And in terms of congressional dominance, it's a period of massive dominance for the Democratic Party. They're in control of both houses of Congress for most of that period. But this vehement response to uh, an expanding role for government is developing in the 1930s. And it really is a pretty powerful response. I think we need to pay more attention to the 1930s pushback uh, against the New Deal as a sort of foundation for modern American conservatism. But yeah, the New Deal was a period in which the closed frontier argument was being used to promote an expanded role for, for government. Oh. And look right. across the nation, look across the uh, the infrastructural footprint of the state of Oklahoma or pretty much anywhere in the nation. Uh, Avi, where are you right now? Where, I'm where in Israel. <laughs> All right. So a long, <laughs> a long way from here, but look across the, the, uh, the landscape of the United States and you see so much of it thoroughly transformed by the New Deal. I mean, state parks, uh, uh, zoos, high schools, uh, stadiums, uh, uh, sewer systems. Uh, I mean, all of this infrastructure built by uh, the New Deal and much of that infrastructure is still here today. In fact, uh, many um, state and municipal governments railing against uh, um, the overreach of government and doing so in the very buildings that the New Deal uh, built. Yeah, so that's a that's a great summary. And uh, by the way, I absolutely agree with you um, that the period before uh, before Goldwater, before really Buckley, before Reagan, is 
a very important period. I myself and on my podcast have interviewed um, the biographer of Robert Taft, who was uh, yeah, one yeah. of the most important figures of that era. And I, I, I now want to take a look if he mentioned the frontier in his speeches, because he was one of the Republican Party's ideas men at the time. Right. Professor Robel, thank you very much. It has been a very enlightening uh, conversation. Uh, thank you for pleasure. coming. Uh, thanks for including me in in, in the uh, the program, and uh, uh, yep, good luck with everything. Thanks again, and thanks also, Avi, for your patience and persistence in uh, getting this done. Yep. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. Mm-hmm.